Good morning, church. Please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. The title of the sermon is The Inescapable Duel, part 2. And once you're at Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 1, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. The Word of God says this. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give His angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve him. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into it. God, we just thank you so much that you allow us to come together, gather freely, openly, to where we could open up uh, your word Um, multiple translations, multiple Bible apps. Um, We are so blessed with your word. And so, Lord, we open it up today, and we ask you to be with us, to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive what's in your word, that we would learn what you want us to learn, God, that we would marvel at our Savior, that we would learn how to resist temptation, that we would glorify you in everything we do. I pray, Lord, you would remove me as much as possible from this so that I do not mess up your word. And we pray, God, that your people will be more like Jesus, that the lost will hear your word and be saved, and that in everything you would be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all this. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. So this morning, I'm picking back up from where I left off last time, which was a couple weeks ago. Last time, I began preaching through one of the most intriguing texts of the entire Bible, the Savior, Jesus has a showdown with Satan in the wilderness where Satan tries to tempt Jesus to sin. I mean, that's what's going on here. And had Jesus given in to this temptation, then the entire Bible would have gone up in flames. All of God's promises, all of God's actions done throughout history to save us, it all would have eroded into nothing had Jesus failed here. And yet, as important as that all is, this showdown had to happen. The entire storyline of Scripture required this to happen. So truly, this is an inescapable duel. It's the inescapable duel. This is one of the most important events to ever happen in history, period. And that is why it is very important to read this passage closely, to make sure that we get it right. We want to make sure that we understand what's going on here. The gravity of this text is so enormous, and the stakes are so high that I felt it would be wise to break it into two sermons. And so last time, we set the stage with the first two verses. And what I did is I asked and answered some very important questions. This morning, we're going to finish the text 
by going through the rest of it and uh, looking very closely at the temptations themselves. Now, for the note takers, the point of the text is uh, pretty simple. Jesus succeeds where all other humans have failed. Jesus succeeds where all other humans have failed. How? Well, he overcomes both sin and Satan by defeating three temptations. That's how Jesus succeeds where everybody else has failed. He beats sin, he beats Satan, and he does so here by defeating three temptations. Now, if you want names for the temptations, they're kind of a mouthful. Um, But the first one would be the temptation to distrust God's providential care. The temptation to distrust God's providential care. The second temptation is the temptation to presume on God's care. And then the third is the temptation to idolatry itself. Our entire salvation depended on Jesus' victory here. And we will see how he overcame these temptations as we move through the text. So I want us to continue to look at this very important event in Jesus' earthly life. The Holy Spirit, the very Holy Spirit that descended on Jesus at his baptism is the same Holy Spirit that now drives him into the Judean wilderness, one of the most desolate and dangerous places on earth. And of course, we know that it says the Spirit led him there. The Spirit drove him there. So God led Jesus to this wilderness for a purpose. He led him there to be tempted by Satan. Now, Satan would be the one who tempts Jesus, and God would test Jesus, okay? And last time I explained the difference. God doesn't tempt, but he tests. Satan tempts, but he doesn't test, right? And so it's important to know the difference between the two, okay? Now, why did this have to happen? Well, in order for Jesus to be the Savior, not only must he be God in the flesh, not only must he be the Messiah, not only must he be the servant of the Lord prophesied in Isaiah, not only must he be filled by the Holy Spirit, and by the way, chapters 1 through 3, Matthew was showing us all those things about him, but not only all of that, in addition to that, Jesus must succeed where the first man, Adam, failed. See, Adam was the head of the human race, and he destroyed the human race with sin. That's what Adam did. So Jesus is the head of a new humanity, a new human race, and he will save this new humanity with his righteousness. What Adam destroyed with sin, Jesus will restore with righteousness, okay? And so there has to be a comparison between Adam and Jesus. He has to succeed where Adam failed, So last time I showed the comparisons between Adam and between Jesus and their respective temptations. And I pointed out that Jesus' test was way harder, came with way more disadvantages. Yet despite all the disadvantages, Jesus will succeed where all others have failed. He will succeed where Adam failed. He will succeed where we have failed. Additionally, I pointed out that Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. See, Jesus' life mimics Israel's history. They were freed from Egypt They were baptized in the Red Sea, and then they wandered in a wilderness for 40 years. Jesus also came out of Egypt. He was baptized in the Jordan, and now he wanders this wilderness for 40 days. Israel, in amazing conditions, failed three huge moral tests along with a lot of smaller ones, whereas Jesus will succeed against those very same huge tests in this wilderness. Yet Jesus will do so in the midst of more difficult conditions. All that is what I covered last time. And I mentioned that there's four dimensions to this text as as we look at it. There's the dimension of biblical theology, theology, exposition, and application, okay? And the biblical theology part is what I just talked about, how Jesus succeeds where Adam and Israel fails. 
You know, biblical theology is the idea that God introduces these themes in Genesis, and then they grow and grow throughout the Old Testament, and then they find their culmination in Jesus. Okay, biblical theology traces that, okay? Then after the biblical theology, you know, we we look at theology, the study of God. This text raises a lot of questions about God, about Jesus, about sin, and about temptation. And so I can't go over those again. It took the whole sermon last time. So I recommend if you weren't here, you go and listen to the last sermon because those are some of the most important questions in the entire Bible. And this text brings them all to the surface. So we need to know those answers, okay? That was all completed last time. So now this morning, what's left is exposition and application, okay? We did verses one through two last time to raise those other two dimensions. Now we're gonna go through the rest this morning and we have to hit it expositionally. What exposition means is we, ex- we look at the text and we explain what it means. Like, what is it saying? What does it mean? Verse by verse. And then, of course, application, we know what that means. How do we apply what we're seeing? How can we learn from Jesus' victory against temptation so that we too could resist the devil and cause him to flee? So, all that said, let's take a look at the text. The main point, as I said, is Jesus succeeds where all other humans have failed. He overcomes both sin and Satan by defeating three temptations. Let's look at temptation number one. The first temptation is the temptation to distrust God's providential care. Let's look at the first part of verse three. First part of verse three. It says, then the tempter approached him. Now, quite literally in the Greek, it says the one who tempts drew near. That is one of Satan's names, the one who tempts or the tempter. Why? Because that's who he is. He's the tempter because what does he do? He tempts. That is his character. And he has been doing this since the beginning of humanity. Now, keep in mind, the first word is translated as then in verse 2. And that's important because it just told us in verse 2 that after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, Jesus was now hungry. Then the tempter comes. Keep that in mind. Notice that. He doesn't come when Jesus is full and strong. He doesn't come the second after the Father declares Jesus to be his son in whom he is well pleased. He comes after Jesus spent 40 days alone in a demon-infested, food-deprived wilderness of extreme temperatures. Okay, He's been there, as I said, 40 days and 40 nights. That would take its toll. That would weaken his flesh. And then on top of that, he would be weak from hunger. And we all know, common human experience, that when we are hungry, we are more irritable, we're more tired, and we're more prone to sin. See, the enemy here wants to destroy God's plan to save us. He wants to destroy God's savior of us. He wants to show that if God is foolish enough to become a man, then Satan thinks he could beat him because he's been beating man for a very long time. And so he shows up to tempt the savior at the savior's weakest moment. And before I move on, let me just say that is often how it works for us in our own temptations. Temptation is less effective against you when you are strong, when you are in the word of God daily, when you're thriving in your church by being fully plugged in, temptations bounce off you a lot more than they would when you're isolated, when you're spiritually dry, when you haven't been in the word. And then when you add on top of that, being weakened due to illness, fatigue, or hunger, That is when you are most easy to lure into sin. So knowing that, we should try to avoid those isolated uh, stages of our life. Avoid it the best that you can. And if you know for a season it's going to happen, then double your focus on the word. 
Double your focus on accountability partners, whatever you have to do. Strengthen yourself, shore yourself up when you're most vulnerable. Okay, with that soapbox aside, getting back to the text, the tempter, he draws near, he speaks. Look at the rest of verse three. He says, if you are the son of God, tell, those, tell these stones to become bread. Now, some people look at this and they see it as the same argument that Satan used against Eve. If you go back to Genesis 3, he questioned God's word. Did God actually say? Did God really say you can't eat of any tree? Now, of course, Satan knows that's an absurd question. God said you can eat of every tree except one, okay? But Satan asks the most absurd question up front so that he could get the conversation going so then he could plant the seeds of doubt. Once Eve corrects him and says, no, it's only that one tree we can't eat, we'll die, then Satan says, you surely won't die. God's lying to you. He knows that if you eat it, you'll be like God. And of course, she liked that. She fell for it. And her husband liked the idea as well. But that being said, I don't think what's happening with Jesus is the same as what's happening with Eve. I don't think Satan is saying, did God really say? Okay. And the reason is because of the Greek grammar. In the Greek, this statement is a conditional statement. We all know what conditional statements are. If this, then that. Meaning it's a condition, it's if, and it's only true if that, right? So you can always tell conditions with the word if. But listen, there's different kinds of conditional statements. This one is a conditional statement of the first class, a first class conditional statement. It has a clear form in the Greek that's easy to see, and when it's in this form, it's always a first class condition. Now, what is that? A first-class conditional statement assumes that the if is already true. It's not trying to prove the if. It agrees that the if is true, okay? There's no doubt about it. So in English, here's how it would work. Let's pretend me and Pastor John are working on our sermons in our office. And that's not really pretending. That's what we do, okay? But we're working on our sermons in our office. And let's say he tells me that when he is done, he'll want to get lunch. So 1 p.m. comes around. I see him close his book really loud and rub his hands together with a satisfied look on his face. I know he's done or he's crazy, but I'm going to assume that he is done. If I then say after that, hey, if you're done, let's go grab a bite to eat, that would be a first-class conditional statement. What I really mean is, since you are done, let's go eat. Now, in English, our words don't tell us what kind of conditional statement we have, what class it is. You have to look at the context. In that context, you would know it's first class, that I believe he's done with his, ser- or his sermon, so since he's done, let's go eat. Okay? In Greek, the words let you know. You, there's no doubt about it. It's a first class conditional statement. Now, why did I go into that depth and tell you that? It means that Satan is not questioning God's word. See, the last thing God said is, this is my son. And it's not like Satan is saying, if you're really his son, that's not what's happening. This is a first-class condition. He's saying, since you're the son of God, he has no reason to doubt it. Satan literally saw a heaven tear open, and the Holy Spirit literally descend upon Jesus in a visible way. And then the father declared loudly in an audible voice, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, Satan knows that God does not lie. And so instead, he's not questioning God's word. He's taking advantage of an opportunity. He realizes God has become a man. And as a man, maybe I can lure him into sin. So Satan's statement should be understood as, since you are the son of God, since we know that's true, tell these stones to become bread. And think about it. As I said, the last word spoken 
from a mouth. And Matthew was the father, this is my son. The very next words are, since you are his son, do this. Satan is challenging Jesus to showcase his power. Now, this is parallel, morally speaking, to Israel in the wilderness after God redeemed them from Egypt. See, God had already declared to Pharaoh that Israel is his firstborn son, that Israel will be a light to the nations. That's what God says. Satan would have heard all that. And so the best way to undermine it is to get Israel to sin. And they did. And they sinned over food. They grumbled against God. They actually said slavery would be better than going a few days without food. We'd rather be slaves in Egypt again than wait for God to feed us, is what they were saying. Now, that's all found in Exodus chapter 16. Now, the crazy thing, in a good way kind of crazy, is God didn't destroy them. He responded to their sin with grace. Despite their grumbling, he gave them bread to eat, a special miraculous bread called manna. But they didn't learn their lesson. They didn't learn to trust him, as we will see as as I go further, okay? But right now, what I want us to understand is Jesus is in a wilderness, and he's gone a lot longer than a few days without food. He's He went 40 days and 40 nights without food. His hunger would be way more severe than Israel's was. Israel, in that moment, grumbled for Egypt. That's a rejection of God's redemption, if you think about it. We would rather be unsaved and back in slavery where we eat slavery food than be free with God and have to wait on his timing for when we eat. Okay, that's what they were doing. And so Satan thinks that maybe Jesus, after 40 days, could be equally frustrated and he'll make food on his own terms. Because think about it, what Israel was saying is we'll get food on our own terms. We'll go back to Egypt. That's what they were saying in their heart. So maybe Jesus could get food on his own terms. Now, I do suppose I need to talk about that for a moment. Is it wrong for a hungry man to want to eat? No. Is it wrong for a hungry man to eat if he's able to secure food for himself in a legitimate way? No. Jesus, as the Son of God, can turn stones into bread. He has to have this ability, otherwise this would not be a real temptation. For a temptation to be a temptation, there's a couple things that have to be there. First, it has to be something in your grasp. If someone tried to test me or tempt me by saying, if you are a Christian, fly to the top of the Empire State's building flapping your arms, I'm sorry, that's not a real temptation. I can't do it. Not even going to try to do it, okay? And so for this to be real... Jesus has to be able to turn stones into bread, okay? And we know he has the ability to do this because later he will multiply fish and loaves to feed 5,000 people. It's as if he creates the many out of the few, multiplies. He could take a stone and turn it into bread. We know he turned water into wine. He can do this kind of thing, okay? So that makes the temptation here a possibility. Now, there's another component to temptation. It has to be something he wants, Uh, Pastor Brian gave the example last week of he never wants mushrooms. You can't tempt him with mushrooms. There's no point, okay? You could put any food before me, and I could potentially eat it, but if I hate it, it's not a temptation, right? It has to be something that seems desirable to me. Well, a hungry Jesus wants food, and a powerful Jesus can make food out of nothing. That's what Satan's tempting him with. So you might be thinking, okay, what's wrong with this? Well, the answer is found in Jesus's reply to Satan. Look at verse four. It says, he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I love this answer for a lot of reasons. 
First, Jesus responds with the words, it is written. Then he quotes scripture. The very son of God himself that all scripture points to, the one who inspired the scripture through the Holy Spirit is telling us that the Bible is God's word and it is the final authority over what humans can and cannot do. Now, Jesus knows that Satan got Adam and Eve to fall by questioning God's word. Satan hasn't questioned God's word yet in this case, but Jesus is jumping out in front of it and just letting them know, I follow the word. It is written. He's letting the enemy know, I am devoted to God's word. You're not going to be able to question God's word to me. It will not work. Okay? So that's what he starts off with. And then he quotes Part of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Last time I mentioned all three of Jesus' Bible quotes come from this small section of Deuteronomy. And again, that's on purpose because he is recapitulating the, the desert wanderings of the nation of Israel. He's succeeding where they failed. That's why he's pulling from this uh, group of texts. But anyhow, here's what he says in the part of Deuteronomy 8, 3 that he quotes. He says, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, he's saying, Satan, there are more important things than food. Yes, I'm hungry, but far more important than that is living off of every word that comes from the Father. Now, at first glance, you might be wondering, how does that rebuke Satan's temptation? It might not make sense if you're you're thinking about it, but you have to remember this verse is part of a larger passage. Let me quote that passage. I quoted it last time. I'll quote it again. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 2 and 3. Pay attention to the emphasis or emphases. This is what Moses says. He says, remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Very key what God is saying. I let you go hungry to test you, and only after the test did I give you food. Okay, This passage shows that Jesus is undergoing the tests of Israel in the wilderness. God let Israel go hungry for a time, then he fed them the manna. That was meant to teach them to trust and rely on God's providence. And now what does this have to do with the word of God? What has God said to them? God told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your descendants will be delivered from Egypt and they will get a land flowing with milk and honey. What did he tell Moses to tell them? I'm going to free you from Egypt and you will get a land filled with milk and honey. If that is the word of God, that's what they're to live by. If they actually trusted him, even if, they let, even if he let them go without food for a while, would they grumble? No, they would say this. They'd say, you know what? We're not going to starve. How do I know? God promised he'll lead us to a land of plenty. This lack of food right now must be a test. Okay, he's seeing if we'll wait on him in his timing or if we will take matters into our own hands and obey ourselves rather than God. But here's the fact, my stomach grumbles, but if he said I'm getting a land flowing with milk and honey and I won't go hungry, then I know I'm not going to starve to death here. I'm living off his word. I'm trusting he's going to give me the food when he wants to give me the food and I won't die. That is what it means to live off every word that comes from the mouth of God. Sadly, Israel failed. They did not think this and so they grumbled. But Jesus is the exact opposite. 
By quoting this verse, he is telling Satan that God has made me go many more days without food, but I'm okay with that. God has made promises about me, his son, the Messiah. He's made promises, and one of them is not that I'm going to starve in this wilderness. Okay, that is impossible. I will live off his promises. Therefore, I can go 40 days without food. I could go more days if I need to. Why? Because man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God, and God has said better things for me. So I trust him. God is showing you and everybody that will ever read this account that I, Jesus, is what he's saying, I will keep his commands no matter what, even if I'm starving. So I am not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm not going to turn these stones into bread. God gave Israel manna, the bread of angels, the moment God decided to do so. And he will do the same for me. You see, Satan's temptation here isn't ultimately about food and hunger. He is trying to get a hungry Jesus to take matters into his own hands. He's trying to get him to distrust the providential care of God. If Jesus turned those stones into bread and took matters into his own hands, it would show that he does not believe that man does not live on bread alone. It would show that he does not believe we live on every word that comes from the mouth of God, and that would be a sin. Satan was so crafty, so sneaky, so smart, to be honest, that he could turn a non-sinful desire for food into an actual sin. That is the enemy that we're up against. Don't underestimate him. Now, Jesus saw right through it. And his faith will pay off. I mean, you could skip to the end at verse 11, and God will provide him food in God's timing. And I'll address that when I get there. So all that then covers the exposition of the first temptation. We went verse by verse. We saw what it means. What about the application for the first temptation? Although the temptation of Jesus is unique, and we will never be tempted in the exact same way he did, because this is like a salvation history level event that had to happen. We're not going to be tempted that way. But the fact is, we still do get tempted. Our sin nature or our flesh wages war against us, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. And then on top of that, you got the world and all of its ideas, all of its isms, all of its lusts that it throws before us, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 says those are waging war against us. So you got your own flesh, you got the world. And then Ephesians 6 tells us that Satan and his fallen angels are waging a spiritual war against us because they're using our flesh and they're using the world to lure us into sin. Okay, that is what they're doing. So it is a tough spiritual war that we are in. And we do get tempted in many ways. So how do we fight back? Well, what did Jesus do? Did he sin and then make excuses? Well, I was really hungry. Let's see how good you'll do after 40 days. No, he didn't do that. Did he doubt God's provision? Why would God let me go 40 days? No. Did he listen to the words of Satan and consider that they might be right? Not for a second. What did he do? He quoted scripture, but more importantly, he believed the scripture he quoted is true. And even more importantly than that, he believed what the scripture said about God is true. You could quote scripture, but if you don't believe it, it won't do you any good. And if you don't believe what it says about God, it won't do you any good. Okay, so you have to quote it, but more importantly, you have to believe it. So if you want to resist temptation, then you need to know the Bible backward and forward. It takes time. It won't happen if you don't read it daily and study it weekly. If you're not in it all the time, you're not going to know it. Come on, if you have weak arms and you grumble about it, are your arms going to get strong by you complaining? Don't you got to go to the gym and do some resistance training and then you get stronger arms? Why would the Bible work any different? Like you really think if you could balance it on your head like this and you walk around for an hour, it's going to absorb into your mind? 
I wish, but that's not how it works. So the point is, we have to study it. We have to know it, okay? We have to be able to, and if you study it and you know it and you're disciplined in it, yeah, you'll be able to quote scripture like you see Jesus quoting scripture here, okay? But even more than this, it's not just a call to know verses so that you could quote them like a fortune cookie uh, or, you know, like a fortune cookie line. You need to know the Bible itself, its storyline, okay? You need to know what it tells us about God and what it tells us about his promises and what it tells us about sin and what it tells us about us now that we've been redeemed from sin. It's from those big ideas that you can reason biblically and be victorious in any situation. Let me give you an example. Let's say I'm tempted to get drunk because I want to drown out my sorrows. Sure, I could start with the passage that says drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God, and that will help. But I could also reason to myself, well, if I get drunk once, I'm not technically a drunkard. A drunkard is somebody who gets drunk all the time, okay? So I could find a way to reason my way around that scripture if I just quote it in isolation. So what's better is to start with the Bible's big picture. Start with God. If I'm tempted this way, first thing I need to think is, what do I know about God? God is merciful and compassionate, and his steadfast love endures forever. The Old Testament says that more than anything else. He saved me when I didn't deserve it while I was yet a sinner at the cost of his son. Why would I dishonor him? God is the one, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, who comforts those who are downcast. Why would I turn to a substance that, substance that will enslave me for comfort rather than the God who saves me and sets me free and promises to comfort me? I can then remind myself of his promises. No matter how tough my life is, there are Bible verses that say he will never leave me or forsake me. He says in John chapter 10, he won't let anything or anyone snatch me out of his hand. Not even this alcohol, not even my sorrows. He won't let this happen. If I just trust him, he holds on to me. He promises also that these tough times, whatever's causing my sorrow, it's not random. Nothing slipped by his radar. He's sending them. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 say that all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose because those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. That is why he brings these tough times. He is making me more like Jesus. So why not draw to him and learn what he's meaning to teach me? Why not listen to James when he says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you? Okay, and then after thinking about God and thinking about his promises, I could think about sin. What do I know about sin? It's a slave master. It's slavery. And I've been set free. I might feel that the temptation is overwhelming, but then I could quote to myself 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says whatever I'm going through is common to humanity. We lie to ourselves. Nobody else has ever gone through this. Yes, millions of people have gone through this. Well, I can't bear it. Actually, that verse says he will not give you more than you could bear. Well, I just don't know how I'm going to escape it. Oh, that verse also says he provides a way of escape so that you may endure it. That is the promise of God. That lets me know I am never in a situation where I absolutely have to sin, okay? And so understanding the scripture that way, starting big, you can then narrow down and reason to the scripture you need. So I hope you see what I did there. Know the word of God, know the big ideas. It will direct you to the scriptures you need in a moment to fight specific temptations. You can never prepare specifically for everything that might come your way. It's impossible. There's too many things. So you know the big ideas, and then they will direct you to the scriptures you need in the moment. 
Jesus had the big picture in his mind that God tested his people with hunger to see if they were humble, to see if they really believe that he will care for them. Do they believe his promises? Do they trust those promises even more than food in their belly? If so, they don't have to worry about food. They know God will give it. They don't have to grumble because they trust that God knows what he's doing and his reason for a couple days of hunger is worth it. It's worth more than the food that they're not eating, okay? Those thoughts made it to where even after 40 days of no food, Satan's temptation did not have a chance at breaking Jesus. And praise God for that, okay? So if you want to be able to resist temptation like this, then guard your mind by thinking according to God's word and know how to use God's word offensively against temptation. It is a sword. You need to know how to use it as a sword. Paul the apostle tells us that we're in the spiritual war against Satan and his demons, but then he tells us this in Ephesians 6, 17. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, that helmet of salvation, protect your head with the promises of God. Think his thoughts after him by knowing the word. And then when the fight comes, know how to strike with that word exactly like you need to. It is a weapon. Use the Bible so skillfully that Excalibur looks like a toothpick next to it. That is what we are called to do. And that is what we see Jesus do right here. Well, it only took one temptation to stumble Adam and Eve. That didn't work on Jesus, but Satan has more than one if necessary. Jesus just deflected the first arrow, so now Satan will fire another. The first temptation was to distrust God's providence. Jesus totally trusts God's providence, so the second temptation is going to escalate things. Satan is going to challenge Jesus to presume upon God's care. So let's take a look at the second temptation. Look at verse 5. Matthew writes this. He says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, this is kind of interesting because it definitely goes beyond what Adam or Israel had to face. When Satan came to Adam and Eve, he came like a weak, unassuming serpent. He had to. Adam was perfect. He was immortal. He had dominion over the world. So Satan had to come in a humble form, a powerless form, and just trick him. Okay? But once Adam fell, we lost a lot of that dominion. And the whole world is now under the sway of the evil one, according to 1 John 5.19. That's what it says. <clears throat> so Jesus, now that humans live in a humble form that's lower than angels because of the fall, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus also comes in a form a little lower than angels for a time, in a humble form. He came as a man. And so now because Jesus comes as a humanity in its humility, Satan's able to appear not as an unassuming serpent, but as a powerful adversary, powerful enough to grab him and change his location. I don't think we think about that enough. And in the book of Ezekiel, a cherub angel grabs Ezekiel and through the spirit transports him in a visionary state. I think the same thing's happening here. I don't think Jesus is literally being taken to Jerusalem because in the third temptation, there's no way that transportation's literal. It has to be a vision, okay? And I'll get to that when I get there. But, uh, but pretty much that's what we have here. So Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. According to Josephus, from that pinnacle, it's a 450-foot drop down into the ravine. Josephus said if you're staring down from there, um, you could get dizzy. Now, part of me is like, Josephus, what were you doing up there to then describe for us how dizzy it made you? But he left that part out. Um, now, some commentators think that these first two temptations were about Jesus showing off his power so he could get a following. 
But that doesn't make any sense. I mean, there was no audience in the wilderness for the bread, right? And I don't think there's any audience for this pinnacle dive because it's, a, it's in a vision, right? And so the issue here is not that. The issue here is presumption. Look at verse 6. Satan says this. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, this definitely represents an escalation. Okay, the moving of the location and the words themselves are escalation. Satan's essentially saying, kill yourself. Kill yourself, Jesus. Try to kill yourself. If you are the son of God, the father would never let that happen. And by the way, Satan's statement, if you are the son of God, is again a first-class conditional statement. So he's saying, since you're the son of God, jump. The father won't let you die. Jump. Jump. Now, if that isn't a clear sign of escalation, then notice that Satan brings in scripture. Just like Jesus, Satan says, for it is written. That's what Satan says. It is written. If, it's as if he's saying, I could play this game too. You say scripture is what you're living by. We'll see. I'll quote a scripture. Let's see if you're living by it. And that should tell you our enemy knows the scripture and he knows how to twist it. So you have to be ready. Now, what Satan does here is he quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. That Psalm in its context originally speaks of the fact that God protects his people. Satan is going to take that passage. And by the way, it's a passage that uses colorful figurative language to describe in the most beautiful poetic way all the ways God protects us. Every word's not meant to be taken literal. The point of it is God protects us in all of our ways. He's in control of all of our ways. But Satan's going to take that passage which has some figurative language and he's going to twist it by trying to use it in a literal way. A passage that's not meant to be literal, he tries to force Jesus to take it literal. So he says, look, God's word literally says... Angels will prevent you from hitting your foot upon a stone. So there it is. It is written. Jump. You need to jump. Now, some folks also make a big deal out of the fact that Satan omits a part of verse 11, where God says the angels will protect you in all your ways. Oh, he left out part of the verse. That's where the twisting's coming. I don't really think it makes as big of a deal here. The twisting is coming in his application of the text. With or without that omitted clause, Satan is still essentially saying the same thing. Jump. Jump, put God to the test. He has to protect you since you're the son of God. And of course, Satan is misusing this text. This is a psalm that is encouraging and is telling God's people he's with them. It's not telling us to test God. So the idea of it is you can live your life for God, knowing that he oversees everything that happens, the good and the bad. But Satan is misusing it to try to get Jesus to test God. That is not what this passage is about. It's not telling us to test God. And so Jesus calls him out here. In verse 7, if you look at it, it says this. It says, Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. So it's as if Jesus said, yeah, I know that's written, okay? God's word does say that, but Satan, you're twisting it. How do I, how do I know? Because the word of God also says, do not test the Lord your God. And since the word says that, this passage you're bringing up cannot mean what you're trying to say. If it means what you're saying, then I would test God. But the Bible says, don't test God. Therefore, it can't mean what you're saying. 
See, Jesus knows he's the Son of God. He doesn't need to prove it to himself. He certainly doesn't need to presume upon the Father to see if the Father loves him. The Father already said, this is my beloved Son. That's what he said at his baptism. So if Jesus were to throw himself off the pinnacle, it would be to test God and to doubt God's word. Okay, And it's also worth noting that, again, uh, Jesus is going to quote from Deuteronomy. He partially quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Um, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. But I want us to look at the whole verse okay, to see what's going on here. It says, do not test the Lord your God as you tested him at Massa. And other uh, passages say he tested him at Massa or Meribah, same place. Okay, But don't test your God as you tested him at Massa. That's letting me know there's a background story here. As God led Israel through the wilderness, they grumbled yet again. But this time they grumbled over water. And Moses accused them of testing God. In fact, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7, it says they tested God by saying, is God among us or not? Okay, that's how they're testing. Is God with us? Is he among us or not? Now think about that. These people with their own eyes saw God destroy Egypt with 10 plagues. They saw the Red Sea torn apart so that they could walk on dry ground. And they saw that same sea fall on the Egyptian army and drown them. They saw God rain down bread from heaven as well as bring them meat through quail. All of that happened before this moment. And yet they grumble for water and murmur, is God with us or not? They already knew he was with them. Okay, They saw all that other stuff. So why are they murmuring? It's to manipulate God. Instead of just asking for water, instead of saying, God, could you please give us water? You've given us so much. Could you give us water? He'd gladly give them water. But instead of that, they say, well, he must not be with us. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to ask. The water would already be here. Okay? Since they saw him do all that other stuff, they knew he would give water. They grumbled over food, and in grace, he gave them bread. So rather than ask, they test him. They challenge him. Prove you're with us. If you're really with us, you'll give us water. You know, and again, in, in, in graciousness, he does. He'll give them the water. That's the time that he has Moses hit the rock. Um, you know, but God still says, you failed. You tested me at Massa. Now, I want you to think about what's happening here. Satan was sneaky enough to change the location and change the scenario, even change the passage to try to trick Jesus. But essentially, He's trying to get Jesus to fail that same second test in the way Israel did, by testing God, okay? But Jesus saw right through it, and he brings the devil back to the Bible verse that this is really all about, takes him straight back there, okay? He doesn't even deal with that psalm. He brings him back here. This is what it's about. Now, later, Jesus will quote this psalm to his disciples, and the irony is he quotes the next verse of the psalm, which talks about the believers trampling serpents with our feet. Kind of interesting that Satan left that part out because he knows whose foot's going to crush his head and it's the one who he's trying to tempt. So the second temptation was overcome just like the first. And it's not going to be the first time this kind of temptation is presented to Jesus. When he's being arrested, his disciples pull out some swords. He's like, knock it off. You know, Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, I could call on the father. He'll send 12 legions of angels. I don't need your help. Okay. If Jesus wanted to, it is within his right to call on the Father for the help of angels. But Jesus doesn't do it there, and he doesn't do it here. Why? Because he leaves everything to the will of the Father. And Jesus does that all the time. 
So there's a lesson to be learned from that, okay? So we've now seen the exposition of the second temptation. Is there an application? Most definitely. This temptation represents a different kind of danger. It's the danger of those who will twist Scripture to get us to sin. False teachers and cults do this all the time. So the question is, how do you guard yourself against that? First, you need to know how to read the Bible correctly. Satan quoted that text in what seemed to be a straightforward way, okay? But he did it out of context, and that will fool a lot of people. If you read the text in the context, however, then you're thinking, wait a minute, this isn't telling me to test God. You're using this text wrong, okay? This is telling me to trust him. You're telling me to act as if I don't trust him. Furthermore, this is Hebrew poetry. It's using some very uh, picturesque language, okay? It's not literally telling me to jump off a cliff so that angels could catch me, okay? That's not what it's saying, okay? But Satan presented it as if it was. So you need to know how to understand the context of various passages and even know which texts should be taken a little more metaphorically and which ones are meant to be taken literally. Also, we see a very important principle here called the principle of analogia scriptura, which just means it's it's a hermeneutical, hermeneutical rule that says scripture interprets scripture, okay? So even if you don't immediately know the context of Psalm 91, you would still know there are other parts of the Bible that refute Satan's use of this text. And so Jesus says, it is also written, you don't put the Lord your God to the test. See, he went to another scripture to say, that can't be what this one means. Okay, scripture interprets scripture. And it's important to have the ability and skill to do that. You want to know why? Because the the biggest cults right now, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, and the black Hebrew Israelites, we got to add them to this, um, they're very sneaky at quoting obscure verses out of context. Obscure verses, meaning the verses, like the Mormons will bring up baptism from the dead. That's just mentioned in a half a verse in 1 Corinthians. Knowing you haven't thought about it, knowing that you don't normally think about it, and then they bring it out and then you don't know what to do. Or Jehovah Witnesses will go to Proverbs chapter 8 and try to make it look like Jesus is a creature, you know, by, by comparing him to wisdom there. And they're, of course, using a, a, a wrong hermeneutic and, and all that stuff. So here's the thing. To prepare yourself for this, you've got to know what the Bible as a whole says. That way when somebody pulls a verse that you've never really thought about and you know they're taking it out of context, they're misusing it to build their whole religion, you could say, you know what? That's not right because it is also written. And then you bring up the big picture ideas of the scripture that prove what they're doing is wrong. Okay, so the application here then requires you to know the word and to know it well, just like the first temptation. I hope you're kind of seeing the point that you can't resist temptation without the word of God. It's not going to happen any other way, okay? Without the word, we're vulnerable. And a final application worth considering on the second one is don't put God to the test. Don't live your life in such a way that you will only do what the Bible says if God gives you what you want. That's putting God to the test. That's actually making your obedience manipulation, which makes your obedience sin, okay? It makes your good useless, okay? Our selfish heart could turn outwardly good actions into evil. Don't use God. Don't try to manipulate him. Don't test him. I'll do this if God does that. No, instead, trust his providence and don't be presumptuous against God. A presumptuous heart is one that our enemy can tempt very easily. Okay, so with all that said, we got one more temptation left. And this is the worst one. This is the the final level of escalation. The third temptation is the temptation of idolatry. 
So let's take a look. Look at, look at verse 8. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Okay? So this is another instance of the devil moving Jesus in terms of location, but it has to be visionary. There is no mountain on earth. If you go on Mount Everest, you're not going to see all the kingdoms of the world. Okay? So this is a visionary state where all the kingdoms, all their splendor could flash before his eyes all at once. Okay? Now, I want you to understand something about this temptation. This is what Jesus has been promised. The nations will be his inheritance. So again, Jesus is being tempted with what's right for him to have, the nations. But like the other two temptations, there is more than meets the eye. Just like wanting food isn't wrong, but distrusting God's providential care is. And wanting God's protection isn't wrong, but testing him is. Jesus wanting to inherit the nations isn't wrong. But what Satan says next makes it clear what this temptation is really about. See, at this temptation, Satan is done with pleasantries. He doesn't prime this one with if or since you're the son of God. He doesn't even appeal to scripture. Instead, he gets straight to the point. You trust God to feed you in his timing and you won't put him to the test? Okay, let's get to what this is really about. Look at verse 9. It says, and he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. All these nations, all these people, all their splendor. Apparently, they were Satan's to give. Otherwise, how could he make this offer? And there's enough passages to show us that the world is under the control of the evil one right now. So the offer makes sense. With the first temptation, he challenges Jesus to do the work. Make yourself food. With the second one, God, the Father, could do the work. He could protect you by sending angels. And the third one, Satan's, Satan's saying, I'll do the work. I will give these to you. I will give these to you. Just bow down to me. So you have to ask, what is being offered here? What is the real temptation? Yes, on the surface, he's offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world, but it is much more than that. He is offering the kingdoms of the world without having to first go to the cross. That is what this temptation is. The Father promised Jesus all the nations, but he has to go to the cross first to save people out of the nations. The cross, and I want you to think about why this temptation would be so powerful. What is the only thing that ever made Jesus sweat drops of blood? The cross. The cross. The cross is the one thing that can make the Son of God sweat drops of blood. The cross is the only cup that Jesus will ever ask the Father to let it pass. The man, the God-man, Jesus, knows what the cross means. It means the wrath of God that we would have all gotten hell for all eternity. It means all that wrath added up for all the people who would ever be saved, hundreds of millions of people being aggregated, added together, and then all being dumped on Jesus on that final three hours on the cross when the sky went dark. That's what it means, how the Father could take an eternity of suffering for hundreds of millions of people and put it in one cup that could be poured out in three hours is beyond our ability to know, but it would have been agonizing. It's beyond our imagination, okay? And so the point is, Jesus knows what the cross means more than anyone, and Satan knows that too. He knows that Jesus knows. So he says, I could give you the nations without the cross. It will only cost you your soul, bow before me, worship me. Pretty much he's asking the Christ to be the Antichrist. He's asking Jesus to be the son 
and yet not be the servant. Okay? That's impossible. If Jesus forsakes being the servant of the Lord, he forsakes his sonship as well. Okay? You can't have one without the other in the Savior. But getting back to what Matthew's getting at here, on the surface, this sort of seems like a deal. But is it? Jesus would forfeit his right as Savior. He would embarrass the Father. And on top of that, he would inherit a kingdom full of sinners. Think about that. Even if he gets all the kingdoms of the world, every one of his subjects was still a sinner. Every one of his subjects would still die. And let me ask you this. Are any of the kingdoms that were there 2,000 years ago still around today? They are all ruins, and now it's new kingdoms that will one day be ruins. So if he would have received the nations, he would have received sinners who will die and kingdoms that would come and go, okay? Whereas if he receives the nations from the Father through the cross, then Jesus will inherit these kingdoms filled only with perfect people. Every one of his subjects will have been forgiven of their sins and they will live forever in resurrection bodies that are glorious. They cannot die. No more sin, no more curse. Jesus will have all the kingdoms of the world in an age with no curse, no death. And that age, the perfect age to come, will last forever. So think about it. These two offers aren't even close. Satan at his best can only offer pathetic counterfeits. Counterfeits that are always garbage when they're placed next to the real thing. And he knows it. And he knows Jesus knows it. At the end of the day, this wasn't about kingdoms. This was about the cross. The mission of the Savior has always been the cross. Satan is trying to bypass the cross because it bypasses salvation. But Jesus will have none of it. Even on the cross, he will trust the Father. He will take the real deal rather than the counterfeit. Now, ultimately, Satan was offering Jesus a shortcut. He was offering him a shortcut in exchange for idolatry. Jesus knew exactly what was being said. And so because of that, he conquers this final temptation with what he says in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Matthew writes this. It says, Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. I love this. He rebukes Satan, and then he commands him, get the heck out of here, Satan. Get behind me. You got no place here. Why? First, because it is written. What is written? Worship Yahweh, our God, and worship him alone. Israel worshiped the golden calf. They failed again and again. But the true son of God will not be an idolater. Here, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, where God tells Israel, worship God and God alone, and he says, do not follow other gods. Satan was trying to get Jesus to break the first commandment here, okay, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, and Jesus would have none of it. This Son of God, unlike Adam and unlike Israel, this one is unbeatable. He alone succeeded where all other humans have failed. And so with his victory secured, Satan must obey him and he must flee. And he does. Look at the first part of verse 11. It says, then the devil left him. Okay, he had to listen to him. The devil left. But I want you to know, this wasn't over. Luke, recording the same event for us, and Luke 4 verse 13 says this. He says, after the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. Okay, he will be back like every cartoon villain he will come back. This, he was going to pick an opportune time. 
So that, that last part there in Luke tells us it, it wasn't over. Satan will be more subtle in the future, and his goal will be the same, to get Jesus to skip the cross. Now, I want you to think about this, because we don't always connect this like we should. When is the next time Jesus says, get behind me, Satan? To who does he say it? Peter, his own disciple. And why? What was Peter telling him to do? He was trying to talk Jesus out of the cross. This will never happen to you, right? And so Jesus looked right at Peter and knew exactly what was happening. Ah, I see what you're doing. You're using my disciple to try to talk me out of the cross. Get behind me, Satan, okay? I mean, that's how subtle he is. Now I'm going to use his friend to try to get him to, to turn away from the cross. And once Satan realizes, okay, I can't stop him from going to the cross, Satan then's going to say, fine, I'll bring the cross to him. And that's when he enters Judas to get him to betray Jesus and then enters the same Peter to get him to deny Jesus just so it would hurt him. He then riles up both the Jews and the Gentiles he came to save and got them to do their worst to his flesh. If you think about it, Satan is inherently double-minded. He tries to kill Christ as a baby through Herod. And then when that doesn't work, he's like, all right, now I got to just try to keep him alive as long as I can and not let him die for sins. But then when he realizes he's going to go to that cross, all right, I'll bring the cross to him and I'm going to spew forth all my rage against Jesus on that cross. And yet by Satan doing that, he seals his own doom. He seals his own doom. His arms got broken by the cross and they are still broken to this day. Our enemy is formidable. But whenever he faces off against our Savior, the God-man Jesus, Satan always proves himself to be irrational and incapable of beating our Savior. And praise be to God for that. Our text ends on the sweetest note. Verse 11 closes by saying, And angels came and began to serve him. See, God did not let the faithfulness of Jesus be in vain. Jesus trusted that God would feed him when the time was right. And as soon as the temptations were over, as soon as Satan was gone, God feeds him. And think about it, the angels serving him. The word serving is a word that means waiting on tables a lot of time. It's a word that connotes food. And this is just my speculation, but I think this is really good speculation. I think they gave him manna. Because this was angels, the bread of angels, as the scripture calls manna. It's the bread of heaven. After Jesus succeeded where Israel failed in the wilderness, he got to eat the wilderness food from the hand of angels, and unlike Israel, he appreciated it. I mean, I guess they could have brought him some steak, but I'm, I'm, picturing, I'm picturing the manna, okay? <clears throat> and here's the thing. Jesus was right. Wait on God. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Food came at the right time, and Jesus did not need to put God to the test. God sent his angels to make sure the son was taken care of. The very thing Satan tempted him with, hey, get God to send his angels. God did send his angels on his timing, okay? So ultimately, Jesus gets everything from the father that Satan tried to tempt him with. The only difference is Jesus gets it in a much better way from the father. Again, there's so much to learn from this. One thing is for sure. Jesus shows us here what James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, therefore, submit to God... Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We often say resist the devil and he'll flee, but the first part is submit to God. Submit to God, then resist the devil and he will flee from you. We are called to resist Satan and temptation and we're called to submit to our God. And our text shows us how. You do it by knowing the scripture. You do it by loving and worshiping God above all else. You do it by knowing the promises and believing the promises of God. 
That is what gets us to press forward in obedience, even when our surrounding circumstances get worse and worse. Okay, This is the kind of thing where we trust God. We refuse these sinful shortcuts to the things that we, we think we want or need. The final temptation in this case was the worst one because idolatry is the worst sin. That's why the first commandment of the ten is you shall have no other gods before me or beside me. No other God beside or before the one true God. Yet, as John Calvin, the famous reformer said, our hearts are idol-making factories. Anytime we disobey God, it's because we wanted something more than God. We prized something more than God. We forsook his command and obeyed our own. And when we do that, we constantly make ourselves out to be God with our own sins. We make the objects of our desire this pantheon of little gods. And when the real God and his word gets in the way, we're tempted to ignore him. Okay? And when we do, we fail this third temptation every time. Every time. We are following somebody beside and above God, and we must not do that. So how do we stop? Well, we follow Jesus. We tell Satan and his temptation to go away. We realize in our head, always realize, that what, what sin offers is always a crummy counterfeit that will not satisfy. Every sin is a shortcut when you reduce it down. It's a shortcut to something that will not satisfy. It's a bad trade 100% of the time. We come to terms with the fact that we need to come to terms with the fact that all of our temptations are temptations to these shortcuts. We want what we want without the cross. What did Jesus tell us? If anyone is to come after me, he must what? Deny himself and take up his what? His cross and follow me, right? That's what Jesus said. Die to ourselves. Take up our cross and follow him. Sin always tries to tell us there's another way. You can have your food without work. You can have love without marriage. You can have wealth without wisdom. You can have satisfaction with yourself rather than with God. You can judge others without accepting their judgment of you. And the list could go on and on. Every single one of those is a shortcut that never satisfies and always makes people miserable. Okay, what God promises, he promises through work and faithfulness. And when you get it, it's so much better than the shortcuts and the counterfeits. And that's everything. It's on everything, any type of sin you could think of. So my point is resist those shortcuts. Resist those sins. Know the word of God. Repeat the word of God. Live according to the word of God. That's how we apply this, okay? But what I want to end with in terms of our thinking is remember, ultimately though, as hard as we may try, we need to rest in Jesus. We rest in the one who succeeded where all other humans have failed. Yes, we are to resist the devil so he will flee. We are to know the word of God and live by the word of God. We're to stand strong even in difficult times. But you know, it is our common experience to fail. And thank God, salvation doesn't depend on us. It depended entirely on Jesus. That is why Satan went so hard after him. But Satan failed. Jesus succeeded. He overcame these three temptations and he went his whole life and never sinned once. And this is why Jesus is the only way that people could be, the only way people could be saved. Our culture hates hearing that. They say, how dare you say that there can only be one way to God? That's so arrogant. Well, first, let me tell you this. God is the one who said there's only one way. 
And let's just be real with it. God is holy. He's an all-consuming fire. And God said, be perfect for I am perfect. That is his standard. So let me ask you, have you sinned? Have you broken God's commands? You know you have. You've lied. You've stolen. I mean, if we really start naming it, we're going to get hundreds of sins in and it'll only take 15 minutes. So you cannot bring yourself to God. His standard is perfection and you have not been perfect. Well, what about other religious leaders? Why only Jesus? Well, what about other religious leaders? Did Muhammad go his whole life without sin? No, he married a nine-year-old girl and said that was his favorite wife. According to the Quran, he was tricked by Satan into allowing the worship of other gods and then had to correct himself later. So apparently he could fall for Satan's temptation. And according to the history that is irrefutable, Muhammad committed genocide against the Jewish population of Saudi Arabia. That's who you're going to follow? There's a billion people that follow him. He is worse than you. Worse than you. And let's be real. What about all the other religious leaders? The Buddha, Confucius, any of them. Look up their lives. Every single one of them. Joseph Smith, all of them. Frauds. Frauds. They all fell for Satan's lies. They all have sinned so they're no better than you. They can't bring you to God. Well, I don't care about the religion. What about the famous philosophers out there? Look up their lives. Look up the philosophers. You will find unfaithful spouses, womanizers, racists, and much more in their writing. You'll find some of them who become hopeless because of their philosophy, and they opt for suicide. Some of them that don't, go, don't kill themselves, they then go mad, and they have to be uh, institutionalized. So much for their philosophy. Why? Because they all try to live without God, so following them won't work. Jesus is the only way. Saying Jesus is the only way to God is not arrogant. It's just the truth. Look around. Everyone fails. I fail. You fail. Everyone fails. But we just read that Jesus alone did what all others have failed to do. He alone was sinless. He alone resisted temptation and sin. And then let's just add to this. He alone is God that added humanity to himself so that he could save us. He alone died for our sins. He alone rose from the dead with indestructible life. He alone is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for everyone who believes in him. And he alone will return walking on those clouds of glory. I don't care what other name you could mention right now. None of them are like Jesus. None of them could be described the way that I just described Jesus. He is the only way to God. He is our salvation and that's what his name even means. And because of that, we live faithfully. Though we may fail, he doesn't fail. And it's his victory that saves us. And we're reminded of this always. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That's our Jesus. And so because of that, loved ones, let us resist temptation let us marvel at our Savior. Let us live in light of his promises, waiting patiently for his return. And in the meantime, let's grow in the word and live in light of it. And if there is any unbeliever here, I just laid it out for you. You are a sinner and there is no one else who could save you. Jesus alone is the one who died for the sins of those who believe in him. Those who believe all of our sins were put in his account. He was nailed to the cross. He paid the penalty. And that's why we're forgiven because it's already been paid. It would be double jeopardy if we still had to answer for our sins. So he paid the penalty for us on the cross. He rose on the, third gray, uh, on the third day. And when you believe on him, he gives you the credit of his righteousness. He gives you his perfect score, his perfect grade, okay? And so the bottom line is this. 
You're either going to stand before God guilty of your own sins and all the books will be opened and you will be judged for all eternity or you will turn from your sins, which means to repent, and you will trust Jesus with all your heart and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and in that case you'll be saved. That's what we want. We call on you to do that. What will you do today? Only you can answer that. We're going to pray and then we're going to get ready for the Lord's Supper. And um, if you want to receive the Lord Jesus, you just pray to him right now. Lord, I'm going to turn away from my sins. I believe on you. And then afterwards, when service is over, come up, talk to me. Uh, talk to any of the leaders here, and we'll gladly walk you through what this all means and, and through the next steps. But with that, we're going to pray, and then I'll give the communion warning, and then our worship team will lead us through one more song. Lord God.